Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. All right, guys, happy holidays. Welcome to our second week of December. And uh, boy, I don't even know, Critical Q&A 300 and something. Uh, boy, we've done a lot of these episodes, and we've got some great answers for you this time, so I want to get right to them. But first, I need to plug uh, the podcast that I did this week. It's an interview with Sarah Edmondson, survivor of Nexium, and uh, uh, prominently featured in The Vow on uh, HBO, I think, and uh, some other documentaries, and of course, her book, and we talk about that and some of the experiences of Nexium and Keith Ranere and, uh, where should I say, uh, Ranere, yeah, Keith Ranere, anyway, and all of that. So I hope you guys will check that podcast out. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And, of course, um, this being the holiday season, I need to plug that I've got merch for sale. If you are interested in any of that for a holiday gift or anything, you can find links below to the Critical Merchandise site. And, of course, uh, you can always um, give the gift of, uh, of support to this channel. <laughs> okay. And that all being said, let us get on with your questions. Steve Wood, why does it take years to complete OT7? How do you know it's finished? Why could it not be finished in two months, for example? Who is the final judge to say it's completed? Thank you for this question, Steve. Yeah, OT level seven. So OT level seven is called solo knots. And uh, knots, N-O-T-S, stands for New Era Dianetics for OTs. There's a long and interesting history to this, which we're not going to necessarily go into in this uh, question, but I am going to directly answer your question here, but I just thought I'd uh, let you guys know there's a lot of technical mumbo-jumbo and garble nonsense and all kinds of stuff mixed up in the levels of OT3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, that band of the uh, Bridge to Total Freedom, the series of, of indoctrination levels or services that Scientology sells people, um, those are the big heavy duty, those are the heavy lifting levels. And OT3, as you guys know from, if you know about Xenu and all of that, is where it starts. You start addressing uh, these external entities to you called body thetans. You're a Thetan, I'm a Thetan. As a spiritual entity, that's what we're called. We're Thetans. But there are disembodied spirits out there. Just like if your body died, you'd be a disembodied spirit. There are disembodied spirits out there that L. Ron Hubbard calls body Thetans. And they are clustered to one another. They're grouped together, uh, joined by common uh, trauma, trauma from the far, far, far distant past. And, and really heavy-duty stuff, Hubbard says. And, and when you, you, know, you blow up a sun or something like that, a bunch of Thetans are sitting around. And somehow they you know, respond to this traumatic uh, energy event uh, by clustering, clustering together. And, uh, and so the, the, the problem with everybody is that they are, their, their body is actually kind of consists of or has to do with this collection of thousands and thousands of body thetans that are connected to you spiritually. This is how Hubbard says reality really works and that all those voices in your head and weird, crazy impulses you get that don't feel like you, yeah, they're from your body thetans. They're these, this, these, these spirits that are kind of in a sort of comatose or unconscious state. And they were put there by Xenu, you see. like all, the, the whole reason Xenu is important in Scientology is not because of volcanoes and atomic weapons and DC-8s. It's because this is how body thetans kind of came about here on Earth. And there are trillions of them. Remember, uh, according to the narrative, the entire population of planets of... of uh, of civilizations of people were brought here, uh, you know, something like 13 planets or something, and each one of them had billions and billions of people. You know, there was this gross overpopulation problem, and Xenu was solving it by basically killing everybody. 
But he only killed their bodies, see? Spiritually, you can't kill a Thetan, and so they hung around. And uh, hanging around in these clusters and being in these comatose states, they're attached to us, and you and I are still relatively functional Thetans. We have bodies. We get around in life. We have a life. They don't. They're just stuck to us. So <clears throat> the idea is that this whole concept is introduced to you at OT level three. And this is the big reveal. Oh, my God. You know, this is why the world is crazy. This is why we have war and insanity and crime and all this. is uh, Hubbard's claiming these body thetans are the problem. They're invisible. We don't know about them. We've never known anything about them. And the fact of mere, the mere knowledge of it and how it came about is enough to overwhelm you and perhaps, Hubbard says, uh, drive you into a sickness, you'll get pneumonia, and you'll die in three days. I mean, so if any of you are dying right now, well, then I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. But uh, so far, everybody I've told this story to hasn't, hasn't passed away, and so I think we're all safe. So, okay, so that's kind of the backstory to this, and the OT3 level is where this was introduced, and this was back in 1967. So now you move forward, and, and Hubbard comes up with more levels. See, originally OT3 was supposed to handle all these body thetans, but then it came up that there were actually a hell of a lot more of them <laughs> than was originally suspected, and there were various reasons why those body thetans were stuck to you and why they couldn't get off or get away or wake up or, or you know, have, go have a life of their own. So Hubbard invented the rest of the OT levels. And so you have OT4, which has to do with drugs, and you have OT level 5, which is a whole series of processes that are run on you by another auditor. It's not solo auditing like uh, OT3 and 4 and 7. OT level 5 has an auditor with you, and, and you go through these various rundowns dealing with body thetans. And then you hit OT level 6, which is the solo auditor course to train you how to do OT7. And OT7 is the actual go home, and you're going to be slogging away for years auditing your body thetans, and you're going to not be done until you got them all. So in terms of answering your question, Steve, the reason it takes longer than two months is nobody's got just a couple of body thetans. You got thousands and thousands of them attached to you. And every session of the OT7 that you go do is about a five to 20 minute session on average. They're usually pretty short. But you have to get in there, and with the use of an e-meter, and, and you're holding the cans, and you're in a room by yourself, you're doing this all silently, you're following a procedure which calls for you to, to detect that body thetan that's out there that is the target that you're looking for with the needle on the e-meter. It goes, and you go, ah, there it is, and you contact it, and you kind of wake it up, and you run some Scientology processing on it to get it out of its, its, you know, sort of degraded state and wake it up and send it on its way. And you have to do that over and over and over and over again. And there's a lot of variations and technical blah, blah. It's all, it's all really just somebody sitting in a room talking to themselves. But like, you know, with the levitating meditation that goes on at the highest levels of, of TM, you know, you got people who have convinced themselves that they are actually saving the world through this activity. And, um, and, it's, and it's really the same with Scientology, where they think that by freeing these body thetans, they are, um, you know, enabling these thetans to go off and have their own lives. And there's even a point on OT7 where you sort of dealt with as many as you can find around you and you start popping off other people's BTs. Your reach is going out farther and farther away from yourself. As a Thetan, you have this, this sort of expanding sphere of influence where you can start detecting and, and eliminating other people's body thetans. And eventually you get to a point where, now here's, here is where to finalize the answer to your question, I'm actually going to read a little bit from my book because, I, you know, I am amazed sometimes. I wrote this thing, you know, years ago, and I'm sometimes amazed going back into it how much data there is in this book about you know, just basic hardcore Scientology principles and how it how the whole operation works. 
So I'm going to shamelessly promote my book right now and, and tell you guys, you know, if the answers you're looking for are in this book and it makes a great Christmas gift. So that all being said, let me read to you from some of what I wrote about this business of um, the end of the line for body thetans, for OT7. What, what, what does it look like when you're done? And this is really bizarre. So I think you're going to like this. Um, Okay, so I said that OT7 is solo knots, new aerodynetics for OTs. Okay, just a fancy name for, you know, this whole nonsensical procedure. But we refer to it as the knots materials, N-O-T-S, okay? In the knots materials, Hubbard makes many claims about the problems of life caused by BTs. Chronic illnesses and physical conditions are all explained in terms of the BTs causing them, even deafness or blindness. By addressing these BTs, chronic physical conditions are supposed to be relieved or healed fully. Scientologists truly believe knots will deal with these things despite the easily demonstrated reality of many Scientologists who have done knots uh, still wearing glasses, developing the same problems in old age everyone else does, and, and you know, as such as heart disease and cancer. Another interesting but very odd thing Hubbard says on this level is the massive collection of body thetans and clusters form an image of the person's body. And this is what a thetan perceives when he looks at the body he's running. The solidity of the body is this mass of BTs and clusters and not the body itself because once all the clusters are gone, the basic biological structure of the body is transparent to a thetan. Those are Hubbard's words. This doesn't really make any sense, but it has to do with the end result of the knots ban, so I have to mention it. Hubbard specifically states the goal of OT7 is a transparent body which does not interfere with the sight of the thetan and is free from unwanted sensations, pains, or pressures. That's the end result of OT7. As more and more BTs are blown off, the person's mass becomes less and his attention goes more and more out to the environment around him. Soon he's directly perceiving the physical universe rather than using the body as a conduit. For example, the Thetan is able to directly perceive the feelings of walls without having to have the body walk over and touch it with its fingers. That's where they're going with this, okay? And... Um, so that's all I'm going to read out of my book. There's a lot, lot, lot more about the OT levels and, and what Scientologists are doing on them in my book. So I'm going to just give you the great, big, huge, disgusting tease about that. But that is the answer to your question, Steve, is that's when they're looking for. And, um, and it's the case supervisor who decides when somebody is done with a level, with it, whether it's OT7 or any other level, and only when certain, you know, uh, hoops have been jumped through and certain check marks, uh, check boxes have been marked off, is the person allowed to finish the level, you know, that they're on, whether it's grade zero, grade one, grade two, or whether it's the OT levels, that's how that works. And then the person, of course, has to, you know, want to be done and agrees that they're done. And then the case supervisor kind of goes, yep, we're, we're good on that. So the person at OT7 is going to have to start manifesting some of this. Yeah, I can see through my body and stuff, and I'm able to perceive the world directly as a fate, and I don't have to use my my little phalanges or, you know, any metacarpals or anything. I don't have to use my fingers and toes to, to go do that. So that's kind of how that works. And um, I hope that is a satisfactory answer to your question. Tony Cartledge. I wondered if you could share your experience on what happens to people's spiritual aspirations once they come to terms with the fact they were in a cult and they wake up to the fact they once believed in nonsense. Do you see any patterns, or are these continued journeys as varied as the personalities and needs of each person? 
Do they go traditional religion or alt-spirituality? Do they go classic or new age? Or none at all? And what has happened to your spiritual aspirations? I might not be too far off the mark to guess that you have gone secular with critical thinking, but do you still have any spiritual hankerings, and what form do they or might they take? What a fun question, Tony. Thank you for asking me about this. And it really is kind of from my own direct observation of a lot of different people coming out of a lot of different groups over the years. I will say that, unfortunately, it is quite varied. And I have not done studies on this. And I wouldn't dare try to guess at what percentages of people go in or go back to their groups or go into other religious groups and are those groups how similar are they to the ones they came out of is there a is there any kind of markers or indicators for where or how to determine is a person going to go polar opposite or are they going to try to find something similar because you're going to find both you're going to find all kinds of things here and you can see this, of course, very prominently in the atheist world, especially the online atheist world, where people get pretty activist about it. And it's perfectly natural. Uh, Yanya Lalich has even uh, talked about how um, when somebody comes out of a cult situation, they get a little bit of a savior complex. They really want to do something about this group they used to be part of, and they want to like make an impact and either you know, markedly, you know, substantively uh, hurt that group or push back on the influence and power of that group, or they want to warn everybody else about it. And you see that kind of behavior. And that's, that's very prominent in the, uh, like I said, the sort of the online atheist world, where you have a lot of people in that world who have come out of deep religious, you know, fundy, fundamentalist type homes or overbearing authoritarian kind of situations where they felt uh, traumatized or lied to, and so they feel justified in pushing back quite hard against organized religion or against their particular brand of it. Um, and then, of course, you have people who come out who then kind of re-examine their religious views or their spiritual views and reframe it and look at it in a different light. And here I can point to somebody like Leah, Leah Remini who came out of Scientology and had grown up in a, in a Catholic kind of home. I think her mother had a Catholic, had come from a Catholic tradition before they got into Scientology. And that happened pretty young for Leah. So there wasn't years of Catholic dogma or tradition there. But when she came out of Scientology, that's the direction her and her family went, as I understand it. I'm not speaking for her. It's just my, my understanding of her is that she has, has kind of gone back into a Catholic uh, belief set, and you know, and then that's fine for her. So, so you will find lots of different examples of lots of different experiences with this. So, I feel on on much uh, more firm ground when I start talking about myself in this regard, and I've kind of been all over the place with it. When I first got out of Scientology, to say I was experiencing an existential crisis would be a very massive understatement. I mean, you don't come out of a group of decades of thinking that you are going, that you are an immortal spiritual being who is never going to die. I mean, you come out of something like that and have to deal with the stark reality that there is zero evidence for such a, a belief and that that belief had come from a pathological control freak. I mean, you know, this is this is not good. And of course, Hubbard was, you know, uh, also pathologically uh, lying all the time. So not, you know, so nothing that he ever said about himself or his work could be taken at face value. I had to suddenly, you know, fact check everything, and that put a real big damper on my willingness to believe in spiritual things. What does the word spiritual even mean? I mean, I brought this up in a podcast a few weeks ago. I mean, it doesn't really mean much of anything as a word because the concept is so varied across so many different belief sets and everybody's got a kind of their own idea of it, including me. I've got a very clear idea of what spirituality means for me, but that belief is very grounded in a Scientology viewpoint. You know, it's, it would be very hard for me to to think otherwise about spirituality because of the years and years of indoctrination 
And Hubbard was not, you know, kind of uh, loosey-goosey about his ideas about spirituality. He said very, very exact, specific things about, you know, not only what spirituality is, but how it manifests itself, its relationship to the physical universe, its history in and before being involved in the physical universe. So a pretty hardcore grounding in this. And and I have to, you know, and prying myself out of that point of view has been, you know, a work in progress, as you guys know. So, um, okay, so now we come to, well, where have I gone? Well, at first, I kind of pendulum swung way off of that and went, well, what can I believe? Well, I can believe in the things I can verify. That's what I can believe. You know, when you, you know, I was very, very uh, tender, you know, about belief and uh, for the first few years after leaving Scientology, I didn't want to hear anything about spirituality. I wasn't interested because I knew and had and and kept learning about just how awful this subject can be in the hands of con men. And there are no shortage of con men in and out of religion who are trying to sell you a piece of blue sky, as John Atak says, um, you know, and, and people buy it. People buy it in droves. And I watched this behavior after coming out of Scientology and knowing how bad belief can twist your worldview and corrupt your intent. And I looked at all of that activity and I went, hell no, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's crazy. You know, those people are deluded. It is sad. It is tragic. They are gullible. They're being taken advantage of. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And I feel really sorry for those people that they have those emotional needs that they have to, to grasp straws, you know, given to them by con men. I mean, outright con men. I am not talking about what you probably experience in your day-to-day -day experience of religion. I'm talking about the Joel Austins of the world, the, the you know, these, these televangelists and these snake oil salesmen who use religion like a cudgel to beat people about their you know, personal sin and and uh, and degraded state and how they have to offer up their money to Jesus to be saved. And I just, and I've watched old people be taken advantage of and young people be taken advantage of and lives be ruined over this. And I just think that's horrible. So I can't, I can't support anything like that. And that's the very worst that organized religion has to offer. But I've come to learn over time, as, as the years have rolled on and as I've gotten more educated, that that's not there, all there is to the picture of organized religion. And it would be unfair to paint the entire subject with that kind of corrupt brush of, of malice and ill intent and gullibility and, and con men, because not everybody who gets into this or goes to seminary or becomes a minister or preacher or pastor or counselor or whatever not not all of them are bad people, right? But it took me a while to get back to that place where I could sort of start thinking more nuanced about the whole topic and engage with apologists and, and academics at a, at a higher level than the YouTube arguments that go on in the atheist world about, how, you know, the counter-apologetics, which are, are fine, but, you know, tend to kind of dumb everything down. That's a there, there, there are much higher things to talk about and much more interesting and deep philosophical concepts to talk about when you look at religion and, and our belief and mythology and how it feeds into our morality and our culture and, and our society. And anybody who's, you know, I've come to realize now that reducing religion down to a set of ideas is is pretty reductionist. It's a, it's a little bit too simple of a look. There's a, there's a lot more involved in religion than just a set of ideas. And this is, you know, this is again how the atheist online community tends to deal with this subject and and I get it. I understand why, but it's I'm saying that there is more to it than that. And um and 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 you can engage at whatever level you want to with it and I think that as people I think me and a lot of other people who've come out of cultic experiences get real curious about this stuff, do find out more about it, you know, do have to sort of resort for ourselves what makes sense and what doesn't 
do we want to be even part of a group again? I, I am at the place where I don't. I am not at all interested in joining any kind of spiritual group or or any group that is professing to have some kind of, you know, truth claim about the reality of the, you know, the metaphysical universe. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm not interested. I don't care. I've seen, I, I've just been spoiled on too many snake oil salesmen selling too much nonsense and at, at all levels of our society for me to just go, yeah, okay, this is the group that has their, you know, their finger on the pulse of the truth and they know what's what and, and they got it over everybody else. I, no way, I'm not, no, thank you. You know, I have a bit more practical, pragmatic sort of worldview about things like that. So I, I tend to still sort of, you know, no thank you. But that all being said, I have been thinking quite a bit about the subject of, of uh, life and death and mortality and, and our existence and, and the nature of life itself. And, and my, my continually unanswered question, science doesn't have an answer to this. Religion, religion's answers to this thus far have been nothing but unsatisfying to me. And that answer, that the answer I'm looking for is the question, why life? Not what is life doing? Not how did life evolve? Not, you know, what, what, is, what, what are all the, the interesting intricacies and, and consequences of life? But why? Why does it exist in the first place? Any life, ants, amoebas, us, all of it. Why does it exist? And answering, trying to find the answer to that question has been more fruitful for me and has, has led me more down more interesting holes and, rap, you know, rabbit holes and reading and education and stuff than anything else I've run into so far. So that's, that's been my pursuit. And um, you could call that a spiritual quest or, or a life uh, kind of quest. Um, you know, I don't know where what what those answers are are going to eventually uh, end up being, but I think the journey itself at this point is is what I'm having fun doing, and being open minded, but not so open, of course, that my brain's going to leak out, uh, as our uh, as always reliable Carl Sagan liked to say. Okay, so that's kind of how I approach this stuff now, and I try not to be dogmatic. I try not to. Uh, make it my business to tell other people what to believe about things. I don't think that's really my place, and and I don't think it's really proper when it comes to you know matters of you know deep philosophical issues and religious issues. I mean, people should be able to make up their own minds about that stuff. It's um, again, as I've said many times, and I will continue to say, it is it is certain people, certain religious peoples. Uh, ego and arrogance and conceit that they can now tell me how to live my life based on their beliefs, where I start running into some very, very serious problems. And, and that's where all of our social conflicts come from on that. So anyway, there you go. I, I, I hope that was illuminating in some fashion. It was, uh, that, but that's my answer. Holly Prevencal. I was wondering if you could go into a day of what it was like in your management position. What kind of things did you do in your job exactly? Okay, life as a manager. So I was the assistant technical aide for the Western United States. That was the full job title that I had for nine years. That was my management role or position. And what that did is it put me in charge of all of the delivery of Dianetics and Scientology services across the United States. I was the one who had to oversee that delivery, make sure it was being done correctly and in volume. And it was the volume part that was the biggest part of my job. It was getting lots and lots of hours of auditing delivered and lots and lots of student points coming out of classrooms. And the student points would reflect the production of the students overall as to whether they were getting through their studies or not. And there were some, some uh, and also the, um, the overall statistic that I was monitoring was called the value of services delivered or VSD. Super important statistic. And that was the monetary value of all the services that were completed that week for Scientology services, for division four in the organization. So if an auditing intensive takes 12 and a half hours to complete, well, let's say they started it last week 
and they didn't finish it. So there's no VSD for that week because the intensive is not completed. They get through the 12 and a half hours and it's completed this week. And the value of that intensive, they paid $3,000 for it. So the VSD for that intensive is $3,000. And I would add up all the intensives of all the auditing that was delivered and all the values of all the courses that were completed for each week. And that was my total statistic. And I'm talking all about these statistics because they were the focus of my life. Everything I did revolved around trying to get these statistics to go up. But it wasn't just the immediate week to week that I was supposed to be concerned with as a manager. My job was to sort of monitor these statistics on a three-week trend. So it wasn't just what it did this week, but it was what it did over the last three weeks. Did it go, was it mostly going up? Was it kind of flat or was it going down? And depending on which direction the graph was going on, those statistics I was monitoring depended on my survival quality and my quality of life. Because if the things were going down, I was going to be in trouble. I would be so, you know, washing dishes at three in the morning, et cetera, et cetera. If they were even, kind of the same drill. If they were going up, oh, okay, I got to stave off the the punishments for that week, you know, and maybe, maybe if they really went up uh, significantly, then maybe I might get a, you know, a day off or a half a day off or something like that. So that was, that was basically how my life kind of worked. And so it wasn't just sending telexes and orders down every day to the orgs demanding that they produce but it was also trying to build them and establish them so they could produce more. Any auditor is only capable of producing about 40 hours of auditing a week, maybe 50 if he's really, you know, there all the time. I mean, the most I ever saw any auditor do in, in one week in terms of actual hours of auditing delivered was, I think, somewhere in the 70s I saw one time. Um, this guy just was in the chair eight hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, that's all he did was he was auditing. Um, no, it was even more than eight hours a day, wasn't it? Anyway, it was crazy. Uh, but most auditors, their, 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 their highest level of auditing would have been about 40 hours of auditing a week. And if you were doing the night weekend schedule as a staff member, it was going to be less than that, maybe 30, 35 hours. So, um, so the point being you need more auditors if you want to get more auditing happening. So you need to make auditors. And where do you make them? Well, in the course rooms, the, one, the very ones that I was monitoring. So I wanted lots of completions of courses. And I wanted those completions to be auditor training courses. That was really important because that's how you make new auditors who will then go audit. And then you get them to join staff so you can count their auditing because uh, it's paid delivery to paying public, right? It's very business-oriented. This is not, there, there's nothing religious about any of this, right? This is all very business-like, and we wanted those hours up. We wanted that VSD up, and that meant that the organization was delivering what it was selling. Because if you have an org that's just selling, 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 and accumulating backlog services, you know eventually people are going to get a little pissed off because they're not getting their services. They're paying for them, but they're not getting them. So we were driving that production, or at least my job was to drive that production and try to drive it as much as the, the income was being driven. But, you know, what I didn't understand at the time is the delivery really didn't matter that much. It really was all about the income, and that's where most of the attention was. But my job was to get that delivery being, you know, happening, the, the auditing and the, and the coursework. So those were my priorities. That was my, that, those were the things I was kind of working on. And the way I would do this is I would be sending telexes, which basically meant I sat at a computer, just like most of you guys do, writing emails. That's pretty much what it looked like as far as what I was doing and sending telexes. They're just formatted a particular way, but you, you know, it was still just basically sending emails to people and written dispatches and directions. And this involved me going and looking at the history of statistics sometimes, going back months, I might go, or even years to see when was this division of this organization doing well? 
how can I boost it up or goose it up so it gets even better? And how can I, or how can I build it back up? You know, maybe Austin used to have a couple auditors and they, they finished their contracts and they left staff and they don't have any auditors anymore. Oh my God, well, I can't get any auditing out of that. So I can't just send orders to non-existent people to produce non, you know, delivery that's not happening. I have to get them to get some auditors. So let's find some auditors. And I would literally go into the data files where, you know, all the reports and information coming up from the orgs. And I would go through and start naming names. I'd be like, well, what about Joe? What about Bill? What about, you know, here's all these people in your field, in your area who are trained auditors. You need to recruit these people. You need staff. And these would be the kind of orders I would be sending down is figuring out how to do recruitment and telling these staff members that I'm ordering around, you know, you got to recruit some people. And they're like, well, I'm, I, I'm supervising classes. I'm auditing people. How am I supposed to recruit people? Well, you better figure it out. You know, this was my level of management, you know, skill, right? So, um, so we would send this kind of, this kind of stuff. And then of course, that all was the usual. Everything I've just described to you was what I was supposed to be doing. Um, then there were all the emergencies <laughs> and they were frequent. So, um, there might be emergencies to make income. There might be emergencies to get books sold. There might be emergencies on the base to do various things, all hands activities or backlog handlings, or, you know, one time my life was completely derailed for about three or four months because it became this huge, urgent problem that there was probably a warehouse full of backlogged filing that had not gotten into all the PC folders. You know, you guys know that when auditing is delivered, they're keeping worksheets. And those worksheets go into folders. And those folders have your name on it. And they have stacks and stacks of these folders that just sit in warehouses because they're, you know, your folders, my folders, everybody's folders. You got, I have 50 of them of all the Scientology auditing that I got. Well, there's a lot of paper there, but it doesn't all just automatically make it into those folders. There are baskets and baskets and baskets of unfiled worksheets and invoices and reports and knowledge reports and stuff that's supposed to get into those folders. And there was a situation in Los Angeles where we let it accumulate for a long ass time. I mean, years. And so we had this huge backlog. Well, this was under my area of delivery, PC folders, auditing, right? So it was my responsibility to deal with this problem. And I had to organize, you know, massive uh, all hands of, of, of all the delivery staff and all the base staff and organize this up and file cabinets and pre-sorting and sorting. I mean, I learned a lot about organizing things, doing stuff like that, because I had masses of people who were, who were there to do the work, but I had to organize it up and get them to do it. So that kind of thing derailed all of my work for a couple months, you know, and I would, and, 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 and there are years of this. So there's so many things I could tell you about that I, that derailed what I was doing while I was also supposed to be keeping that work going. So it was a constant tension of dealing with emergencies that, that really were unpredictable and you just couldn't even imagine some of them. Going off on projects and missions, which was just a usual Sea Org activity that anybody could get sucked up into, and then doing my regular job. And then being a Sea Org member where we had to clean every week and we had to, you know, go eat and do this and do that and hold events. And, you know, like when the events would happen, I was the guy who was in charge of getting everybody's butt in their seat on time. That wasn't my job as a manager, but it was an additional duty I had every time an event rolled around. I was the usher in charge. So I had a group of ushers under me and we had to spend a couple of weeks drilling and figuring out how to do it. And, I, and then until I got a regular kind of crew of people over the years, and this was a function I had as a Sea Org member, which had nothing to do with my job, but it was still took up a lot of my time. 
So, um, so, you know, this, this kind of stuff. So I could, I, I don't know, I suppose I could throw stuff at you all day, but just trying to give you an overview of what my main priorities were, what I was trying to do and how that, you know, really looked in the real world. So there you go. Patricia Benevente Alcade. I'd like to ask you about something everyone who has been under significant undue influence has experienced. How do you get in touch with your real you, the person who is there, although not fully emerging, the person you were before being manipulated by the narcissist or the cult? Do you happen to know any literature, books, videos about that particular subject? Hey, Patricia, thank you. And I hope I didn't butcher your name too much there. Um, so... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff about this. Steve Hassan writes about it. It's basically his, the whole pre-cult personality thing is something he has put forward. I, I think that's his theory. If not, it, you know, it might go earlier to, to Yanya or Margaret Singer or something. You might check out Cults in Our Midst as a book to read to tie that might go into that. But certainly Steve Hassan's books all go into that. Um, and, and, uh, where you have combating cult mind control and freedom of mind and stuff like that. So you can check those books out as other references on that. What I will tell you are pretty much just my experience and thinking on that topic. Um, I, I, I don't really think about it or frame it in terms of any more. I did for a long, long time. I thought that was a really good analogy. And I still, I don't think it's a bad analogy, but... I think that it can be a little mis, you know, construed or misunderstood in that you start thinking that you're not you anymore and you have to go back and find who you are or something when you get out of a cult. And I don't really think about it that way. Having gone through that experience myself, the way I would kind of rather talk about it is, is you, you are reframing or recategorizing all the elements of your life. When you come out of a cult, the, the, the recovery process or getting over a destructive situation like a bad relationship, a bad job, a, you know, a, a cult, you're, you've gotten used to a certain point of view. You've gotten used to looking at, you've become habituated to thinking certain ways, to using certain words or phrases to, you know, you've been culturized basically into a way of, of, of approaching the world and believing and perceiving the world. That's what being in that kind of cultic milieu is, well, that's what we're talking about. So you can change that and we do change that all the time. You know, if people uh, immigrate from one country to another, they're engaged in a very similar process of unlearning what they used to know and learning a whole new way of framing what is really the same world. It's not like when you move from one country to another, you're changing planets or something, but it sometimes feels like you are because the language is different. The, the, the priorities of the culture are different. Uh, food's different. Travel is different. You know, the, the, the streets can be different. Even colors can be different. So, so life can suddenly look very, very weird and you can feel like a completely different person after you've reacclimated to this new environment that you are in. And I think that's kind of more of what's going on when you're going from, you know, into a, a, a totalist cult situation out of that, you're suddenly given the power of choice and freedom to think any way you want. And believe anything you want. And that's, you know, that's a little heady and it's a little hard to get used to. And you're so used to thinking along certain lines because of the language and the, and the mental constructs that that language represents. And that's why I talked from the very beginning and continue to say, get the language out of your head. Stop using it. Stop thinking with it. That is probably one of the most important things you can do to, you know, sort of readjust your thinking. And you'll discover by doing that, you'll have to pull from your own understanding and reservoir of knowledge, including your pre-cult time, right? Like for me, the word critical. In Scientology, critical is a very bad word. You don't want to be critical, 
Being critical means you have overts, you have sins, you have moral transgressions. We have to, we have to, you know, sit you down and and make you confess because you're being critical. Not a good thing. Outside of Scientology, engaging in critical thinking and being skeptical and critical is a very important, uh, essential, you know, dare I say, uh, characteristic to have. It is very important to be critical and to, and to develop good critical thinking skills. So, same word, very different concepts, very different ideas. And so, you know, really reintegrating your thinking back to, you know, more accepted, more commonly understood, more, you know, more maybe true or empirically proven or rational sort of things, right? That's the kind of stuff you want to glom onto when you come out of a cult. And um, and really focus your thinking on, you know, on retraining yourself to go in those directions. That's what's worked for me. For other people, maybe there are other ways of doing this, but that's what's worked for me. Um, you know, admittedly, I, I try to approach things more from a skeptical, analytical point of view than from an emotional one, you could say. Um, but I, I think, you know, that, that, uh, that a, a key, key part of critical thinking is, is emotional intelligence and understanding the role that emotion plays in our life and in our decision making and how it can influence us and, and how our emotions can be manipulated by other people. I, I, I take that as part of critical thinking and I, you know, I, I, I guess some people haven't really understood that. So I think a very important part, Patricia, of your question here is in terms of how do you, you know, get in touch with the real you? Well, I think the real you emerges when you start rethinking and recategorizing and questioning everything you think you know, right? And and coming out of these situations, that's what we tend to do. You know, unless, of course, we're in complete denial about the whole thing and we're just sort of trying to block it off. But I don't think that's where you're coming from. So, so I'm trying to trying to say if you you know if this is what you're struggling with then then just kind of open yourself up to well what do I think about this or about that what, how how might how might I rethink that if you don't like how you're thinking about something well how do you want to think about it and and what and how you know how do you make a, bridge, a little bridge to get there you know um, I had to do that when I re-examined or sort of rethought about the whole, you know, homosexual LGBT thing. Coming out of Scientology, I was very homophobic, and 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 that's really the word to use. I mean, I was homophobic, no question about it. And I had to re rework that whole thing. And I knew there was a problem, and I knew that I wanted to resolve that problem. Um, but getting there wasn't just a matter of changing my mind. I had to go read and watch and learn and kind of, you know, steep myself in a little bit to to unlearn the earlier Scientology crap and let that go. And one last thing I want to say about this real fast is that it's not a matter of you find yourself and then you're done. <laughs> you know, it, you are a work in progress till the day you die. You, me, all of us. It's okay that we change our minds. It's okay that we learn new things, that we grow, that we evolve. It would be kind of weird if we didn't. In, in many, many ways, the problem with destructive cults is they force you to stop changing. They force you to stop evolving. You have to be a particular thing and you have to stay that way. And it's really kind of, I think, more natural for us to, to, to be willing to change our minds, to accept new information and think about things and rethink about things and look at stuff in a different way. And, and that's, I think, reflective of who we really are. If you're looking for yourself, I think it's that element of you that is curious, that is, that is you know, inquisitive, that is, uh, that is wondering about the world and, 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 and eager to explore it and look into it and, and live life and all of that. That's, that's kind of, you know, when you come down to the brass tacks of it, I think that's who we really are. And, and it could be, you know, and there's so many different ways of developing that, that I, that I don't want to narrow it down to one or two ways. So I'm just throwing out lots and lots of suggestions and ideas about how I've approached this. And maybe that might help you in your process and if not, you know, again, there's books on this. There are, um, there's therapy available for, for help with this. There's lots and lots of approaches to it. 
So, uh, so don't take everything I'm saying here as the only way to go about this, because that is far from, from the case. It's just the stuff that's most real to me, because it's what I've done. And there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Oscar Q. Zilch. How did your extended family process your immediate family's journey in and out of Scientology? Well, to be honest with you, I haven't really been in touch with my extended family very much in decades. And so I really only have sort of, you know, second and third hand knowledge of this. But as I understand it, people are, um, you know, pretty happy that my folks are out of Scientology and that I am out of it. But, um, but just, you know, just to be totally honest, not a lot of connection there. I am very, very closely connected with my immediate family, but I'm really not super connected with uh, the family beyond that. Leo Taxel, how entrenched are Scientologists in secular institutions globally, such as credit card companies, police forces, lawyers, etc.? Well, Leo, they're not super transparent about that, so I can't say for sure. But like, for example, in the 27 years I was in Scientology, I met two police officers who were Scientologists in the L.A. Pasadena area. So, you know, not a lot. Uh, lawyers, I met a couple, you know, people who worked at credit card companies. I, I, I don't know any Scientologists who do. So, you know, there's not a lot of Scientologists. So I don't know that you that it's... Um, that they have cornered the market on any industry or, or infiltrated any area too thoroughly uh, on, on that count. Travis, what's the difference between magic and illusion? Well, the way I think about it, I think magic is sort of paranormal or supernatural and in, in, in sort of at its core element, whereas illusion is is just mental perceptive trickery it's it's messing with people's perceptions and making them think they see something hear something experience something that's not really there but it's trickery whereas magic for me as a word sort of encapsulates something much 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 different uh you know it's sort of the um uh, well, it's supernatural. It's a supernatural quality or, or, or thing. So that's, that's how I differentiate them. All right, guys. So that's our show for this week. I hope it was interesting, informative, and educational in some fashion or another, and perhaps entertaining. If so, if you are finding my channel interesting and uh, want to support it, please go ahead and check out that Patreon link in the description section to this video, or of course, you can always just gift us with a one-off via PayPal. Always appreciated. Thank you very much for coming around and inviting me into your home this week, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.